0: Welcome to Inside Infrastructure. I'm Ilya Zak from Series sponsor, PwC Australia, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Adrian Dwyer, CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. Later on, we'll play our interview with Graham Bradley. But first, Adrian, how are you doing?
1: I'm well, Ilya. I've just wrapped up a a couple of state budgets here in New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, We send out a lot of analysis to our members on on social media, uh, so that takes up a lot of time.
0: Uh, Yeah, I know I received the analysis and having read them, there were uh, two pretty different looking budgets handed down by, by New South Wales and Queensland? What, what were the key differences?
1: Uh, so oh, I think there were some similarities and some differences. In in Queensland, um, government was able to preserve the level of infrastructure spend uh, despite some significant write-downs in revenue. Um, but the approach that's been taken in, in Queensland is looking at um, increasing taxes in some areas and um, incurring further debt. Um, and that They've sort of continued to paint themselves into a corner in Queensland with um, a, a rejection of asset sales as a way of recapitalizing the balance sheet. So the only options are uh, more taxes or or more debt. Uh, if um, if cutting services isn't an option,
0: does that uh, has that been the case in New South Wales, or does it look a little different?
1: So in New South Wales it's similar challenges in that there's the write down in revenue. Um, the the budget had a substantial increase again in um, capital expenditure. Uh, well over $90 billion of capital expenditure in the next four years on the the New South Wales whole of government Um, sector capital spend. uh, The write down in revenue GST, particularly stamp duty uh, as the property markets come off. But the, the difference in New South Wales has been the reform of the balance sheet, the selling of assets, and therefore providing the capacity to to go into a reasonable level of debt. Uh, and what were the striking difference between the two budgets was particularly in New South Wales, there was talk of further reform. Talk around uh, other areas that um, where reform can be incentivized by the Commonwealth government. Um, and also um, a lot of talk in the media around potential asset sales that could also go alongside the previous ones to help fund the next round of infrastructure investment.
0: It, uh, it certainly it certainly looked different in the media, um, the way it was presented, and in your summaries as well. I guess um, it'll be interesting to see, I guess, how the the public responds to those uh, to those two
1: budgets and to to those challenges. Yeah, absolutely. So there's the, there's the the common challenges around the write down in revenue um, from stamp duty and, and GST, but two quite different responses to how um, y- you deal with those challenges. Um, and as you say, that the public will, um, in um, New South Wales, in Victoria, and Queensland, will respond in different ways to to the ways their their governments have sought to tackle those challenges. Be interesting to to keep to see how that pans out.
0: Um, turning to the main part of today's episode, we had as our special guest another eminent Australian infrastructure personality, Graham Bradley, who we spoke to a couple of months ago. It's it's pretty hard to do justice to his CV in a quick summary because much like our First guest, Kerry Schott. Graham is the chair of just about everything and before that was the CEO of everything else. Um, he's got a remarkable breadth of experience and insight, and because of that, we've actually split the episode in two. The, uh, the first episode will deal primarily with Graham's chairmanship of Energy Australia, and the second with his role as chair of Infrastructure New South Wales. He offers a very unique insight into the infrastructure sector, and
1: so here he is, Graham Bradley. So, Graham Bradley, thank you for coming on Inside Infrastructure. Um, Your your bio describes you as a professional company director. Um, It seems very apt when you look at your your CV. Could you maybe sort of tell us who you are and what you do?
2: Well, uh, I am a professional company director and uh, with specialty in chairmanship. Um, So, I have the privilege of chairing quite a large range of companies, um, both uh, in the public company sphere, private company, and uh, of course, as you know, government. Uh, including my role at, uh, as chair of infrastructure in South Wales, and when I'm now in my sixth year in that role.
1: And so, some of the other roles that you you chair, um, I know the list, but maybe you could. Yeah. Well, well, we uh, think we know the list. We yeah, think that's we know the list. <laughs> it's, look, it's, uh,
2: it look, I, it. I have had. Uh, this is my fourth career, by the way. Uh, being a company director, I've had three careers beforehand. I like to think uh, this is about. This is the most enjoyable part of, of my career, as I look back. But um, I currently. Uh, Chair HSBC Bank Australia, which is the largest uh, non-Australian-owned bank in Australia uh, these days, um, and uh, I'm also on the board of that bank in Hong Kong, which runs the whole of Asia. So I have a wonderful window into what's happening in the the region, yeah. uh, which is a great privilege. Um, I chair uh, Energy Australia, uh, which is our third-largest uh, electricity producer and, and retailer, uh, as well as gas uh, retailer. Uh, and that's a fascinating industry at the moment and a critical part of the, glo- uh, the nation's infrastructure, uh, which is under some stress. Um, so I've been involved chairing uh, companies in both banking and electricity, which has been made uh, a very interesting time in the last uh, tw- tw- 24 months, uh, given the stresses on those sectors. I've also uh, chaired GrainCorp, um, our largest listed agribusiness company for the last two years. Uh, that's uh, infrastructure heavy. Uh, an important part of our export chain, um, and uh, infrastructure New South Wales are my major my major boards at the moment. But in the past, I've had the uh, privilege of chairing Stockland uh, for uh, a dozen years, uh, one of our largest residential and property development companies. Um, and I've been on the board of companies like QIC. Um, I'm on the subsidiary board of Virgin Australia, so I'm very involved with the uh, the airline industry. Um, and, uh, and of course I've got a few non-profit, uh, roles, uh, including a directorship of Tennis Australia. Yeah.
1: Okay. And um, so just to, there's quite a blend there. So mm. there's listed, there's government, there's private, it's private, so yes. a China Light and Power Own Energy Yes, that's, that's a
2: wholly owned subsidiary of a, a listed Hong Kong company. China Light and Power. So mm-hmm.
1: what, what's the uniting theme across all of this? The li-
2: uniting theme is diverse, the diversity. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, uh, if I can uh, put it that way. Um, one of my earlier careers was as a management consultant at McKinsey & Company, mm-hmm. and I spent 13 years there and uh, became a partner uh, for six of those years. And uh, I thrived on the fact that every six months I'd be working in a different sector and a different industry. Um, Mm. I just really enjoyed getting to know a different part of the economy, applying uh, strategic thinking to the problems of that sector at that time. And ever since that, I guess I've been a diversity junkie. So I kind of like uh, having a, a range of uh, of interests and uh, board portfolios that give me a chance to intersect with the economy quite across a lot of different sectors.
0: Can, can you talk us through a bit of that background? Because there's no, yeah. you know, there's no bachelor of boards. You know, you've yeah. you've you've yeah. Uh, you've come to that come to this current position from a wealth of experience. Can you talk us through a few of the roles that, that led you to hit, to where you are now?
2: Yeah, well, I started my career um, as a lawyer um, and, and I studied here and I, I also did a master's at, uh, of law at Harvard. Um, at that time, I, I um, uh, thought I'd have a career practicing law, uh, but uh, soon after I, uh, be- well, soon before I was to become a partner of a law firm in Sydney, a major law firm, um, I got a left field offer to join McKinsey & Company, at a time a relatively small and not that well known management consulting firm in Australia, started here by Rod Carnegie back in the in the late 60s. Um, and I thought to myself, well, this will be interesting. I've always been more interested in the business challenge and issues than in the legal niceties and mm. fine print. Uh, and this will be a good way for me to become a more commercial lawyer. So I thought, right. well, I'll take this on for a couple of years, learn a bit more about business, and then go back and uh, either as a solicitor or a barrister, uh, be a more commercially astute uh, lawyer. Anyway, 13 years later, I had given up an ambition to go back to the law because I enjoyed the work I did so much, right. and uh, I enjoyed intersecting with and contributing to the the governance and the uh, success of some of the biggest companies in Australia. Um, spent my first year as a consultant uh, at Mount Tom Price, helping. The uh, then relatively new iron ore industry uh, s- establish itself and sure. and pr- and dis- uh, become more competitive and cost effective, and found that I could apply my my skills. Um, always been uh, fairly comfortable with uh, maths and uh, and uh, uh, a reasonably good instinct for uh, commercial decisions. So found that that worked very well for me. So thirteen years at McKinsey. Um, And uh, at the end of that time, I thought I'd like to run something as a CEO and looked around for uh, the right CEO job. And the one that came along, uh, interesting enough, was as the chief executive or national managing partner of Blake Dawson Waldron, a very large law firm. So I kind of went back to uh, my legal background. So then they became became Ashurst? It's now Ashurst. And uh, it's one of the three or four biggest law firms in, in Australia before the mergers, the international mergers. Um, and uh, I, but I, but I joined not as a lawyer, but as a chief executive. Okay. So you
1: weren't practicing as a lawyer day to day.
2: No, I wasn't game to do that.
1: Could uh, you have I, done that <laughs> job if you, would lawyers have accepted you, had you not had a background as a lawyer? Forward, do you think? Yeah,
2: possibly because uh, people like James Strong um, and others were engaged as at, around that time as um, managing partners of the firms who didn't have a legal background mm. but for me it was a great advantage uh, it meant I could become a, a full equity partner of the firm um, right it meant that I would be reasonably familiar with uh, what our um, lawyers delivered. Uh, and could then talk to the general counsels who are our clients you know, with some knowledge of, of what the service they needed. So for me it was a great advantage and it was a, um, a test for me as to whether or not I could uh, apply my skills um, as a chief executive, whether my instincts um, about people management, my instincts about business strategy were good and sound. And um, it was for me it was a, a critical uh, role because it, it made me feel comfortable in that leadership role, uh, but after four and a half, five years, um, uh, the door I got a knock on the door and got an opportunity to be the CEO of Perpetual Trustees, mm. uh, a public listed company which would be in a different sphere of, of, of interest and uh, learning for me. I joined that right at the beginning of the funds management uh, revolution. And fortunately, Perpetual had a lot of the infrastructure, the funds, the experience you needed to offer uh, high quality um, financial planning and and funds management advice. So we. So around what sort of time is this? Uh, we're talking um, 1995.
1: So uh, sort of towards the end of the kind of Hawke Keating, or midpoint of the Hawke Keating. Well, uh, compulsory
2: superannuation had yeah. had come in a, a few years before. Um, self-managed superannuation was starting to become uh, something people were looking to do, but there was generally uh, a heartthrob of money coming into mm. the, the then relatively um, uh, new superannuation industry. There was there were the AMPs of this world; they've been doing it for sure. years. The MLCs and so on. But the flood, of, whole, the flood of money was a whole, whole range of then. new funds managers yeah. coming into the industry. Uh, lots of people, banks and others, wanting to play in that that era and the beauty of what I inherited at Perpetual was a hundred-year-old name that was redolent with, uh, with trust. Mm. People trusted it uh, because that's what our job had been—a trustee. Right? So we were able to build on that uh, that reputation, and uh, I enjoyed my eight years there building that company up to, I think it was then the largest listed funds management business in Australia. Yeah.
0: So, the, the, as far as formal training, you've you've mentioned effectively two law degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, was there was your business training more or less on the job at McKinsey? Absolutely, or? yep, okay. And that
2: was uh, that was exactly why I joined. Right. Uh, I, at that stage of my career, with a with a young family, I wasn't uh, uh, about to take two years off to go and uh, do an expensive MBA. Um, yeah. I thought I
0: could learn the skills necessary on the job, and uh, that's the way it proved. I, I mean, traditionally, McKinsey places like McKinsey, well, it's it's a prerequisite, but if they've already taken you... It is then, now, uh, it is now, you've... but it wasn't in my day. And, okay. and uh, you know, when I joined that
2: firm in 1978, there were very few Australians who had MBAs. There were no MBA programs in Australia. Right. Uh, you had to go to Harvard or Wharton or Stanford to get one, and there were relatively few people could afford to do that. Yeah. Um, so there were probably as few as six or seven Australians a year graduating from MBA programs. Um, in the US and a few from the UK uh, or similar degrees. So it was a small pool as a result of which um, McKinsey were recruiting people from different backgrounds and um, I just happened to get exposed to the firm doing some quasi uh, commercial work for one of their clients and uh, one
0: thing led to another. Hmm. Sounds like it was a very successful training program.
2: (laughs) Well uh, for me it was and uh, so my career has developed I think building on each stage of my career, building on that experience to give me the background, I I hope the skills, certainly the, the, the confidence to take on the next roles. And similarly, at, at Perpetual, uh, I was CEO of a public company. My first experience as a director of a public company, I had some very good mentors there in the board who were engaged around the issue of corporate governance, mm-hmm. uh, what it meant to be a well-governed. Public company uh, at a time when we didn't even use the term corporate governance. Right. It wasn't in common parlance. So I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the um, again the mid 1990s here, um, and uh, so I started to engage around that issue. I made some speeches uh, around you know what should an audit committee do? How did a public company manage risk? What were the the good practices and and um, built a, a reputation for myself in, as someone who understood governance. And uh, I, bu- I built on that, of course, uh, in my post-perpetual career uh, and was offered a number of board positions, not because I knew the industry, mm-hmm. but because I it was felt I could bring some uh, in- experience and, and knowledge of, of what good governance looked like.
0: So that's the commonality for, as far as your input to the many organizations that you're on the board now, yes, is that yeah. that governance approach? Yeah. H- how do you how do you um, how do you balance them out?
2: There are times, um, not as often as you'd think, uh, when you'll have uh,
0: serious issues going on uh, at the same time, simultaneously. But um, are but there any conflicts? Not necessarily time conflicts, but um, potentially I- you've got you know interests in organisations where that yes. might not be able to make a yes. Clear Look, decision.
2: conflicts occur in business all the time and sure. on boards all the time, and, and you need to, to manage them. To give you uh, an example, uh, when I first joined the Board of Stockland, um, opened my very first set of board papers, and the first uh, project that they were to be discussed at the board uh, was a, uh, a, a, a paper about Stockland's bid to build a new campus office uh, for uh, Optus. Right. I closed the board papers and rang the chairman and said, you don't know this, Peter, but I'm about to be appointed as a director of Singtel. Right. I will have a conflict on this issue. I should not get these papers and I'll do the same thing at Singtel. Okay. Right, so for two years, um, I didn't get the papers uh, associated with that project. Stockland won it, did a great job building a wonderful mm. campus out there at Macquarie Park but I was not part of that decision. So those sort of things happen all the time and they're just part and parcel of what you manage in, uh, in board land.
1: One of the other things that's interesting to me about boards at the moment is this discussion about what the board's responsibility is and mm-hmm. it's come out of the uh, the Banking Royal Commission. Um, it, it's a, I think it's an issue that's much broader than banking now. Um, mm. Is that something that you have a a view on that it needs the boards need to evolve what their role is or
2: a very strong view on this uh, and I've been a contributor to the evolution of the ASX corporate governance guidelines since they were first promulgated in 2003 Uh, I was on a panel to review them for practicality uh, before they were ultimately adopted by the ASX and I've been involved in each iteration and this issue came up just recently uh, when the new revision of those guidelines sought to intrude uh, concepts like a corporate social responsibility, Mm. uh, a corporate license to operate uh, into those uh, guidelines, which are quasi-regulatory. And I was uh, opposed to that, and uh, fortunately those have all been taken out of the the draft. I think there's a distinction that people miss here. Um, Firstly. Every company needs to have uh, a social purpose. If it doesn't have a social purpose, it doesn't have a business, mm. right? If you, you're providing an economic service of some kind that has that's valued by customers, you, if you don't have that, you don't have a business. Right? Sure. And every company must operate within the rules uh, of of the, the of the law, the law, obviously, but also the expectations of its customers and mm. the expectations of the communities. I think it's a different thing for a company to adopt. Its own social purpose and define it for itself versus to have one imposed on it by the community, right? Mm. Which is an inherently slippery concept and can be the plaything of every
0: special interest group. Can you give some examples of what, what you mean by that? Well, um, where, where, that, where that has manifested itself as a, as a problematic scenario? Well, yes,
2: I, I mean, uh, let me take Energy Australia. Uh, So, we uh, provide a vital service in providing reliable and as affordable energy as we can to our customers, and to do that we run brown coal and black coal power stations, along with wind stations, along with uh, photovoltaic stations and some hydro. Um, There are people in the community that would uh, lobby us to stop uh, uh, creating electricity from coal. uh, but we have uh, a, an absolute social purpose to provide low-cost, reliable power, right? And that can be at odds with some people in the community. Uh, if if you impose on directors something as amorphous as, well, you've got to uh, have a social license to operate, well, then any person in the community can, can assert what they think is, is mm. your role. Uh, ultimately, directors have a responsibility to, in good faith, uh, to apply their skills to uh, make a success for the interests of the long-term owners of the company, of that business, and, and
0: that might be not producing with coal, but that's for the, the the company to decide, as as far as if that's a more it's profitable. It's for the company to decide, or... unless
2: there's a law that says you exactly. have to do it differently, right? Uh, there's a law now that says you have to have a certain amount of renewable energy. We will uh, and we do comply with that. Um, and and so th- those are the f- that's the framework within which your job as a, as a director is to keep the company successful and viable in the interests of its members, but that does not in- preclude you, uh, and in fact arguably requires you to um, be a good corporate citizen. Right. To understand uh, what the community expects, to engage with that, um, to argue your case as to what, why, why you conduct the business in the way you do, certainly answer to your shareholders in that regard, but it is something, the purpose you adopt should be one that you frame for yourself and therefore manage for yourself, not something that's imposed on you other than by legislation which is the way we run
1: our country, isn't it? So t- talking of legislation and, and yeah. policy and energy. Because um, you've helped us out there with an impeccable segue, <laughs> have I? Into- <laughs> yeah, to, to, yeah. to um, emissions policy, reliability, climate policy uh-huh. uh, in the energy sector is clearly a fraught subject at the moment, um, and in particular the kind of the multiple attempts at um, different ways of pricing carbon and dealing with emissions. Yeah. Um, That is clearly a difficult issue to deal with as uh, an energy gen tailor. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk us through how you you direct management and direct a business when you've got this kind of absence of an overarching long-term policy?
2: Well, that is very difficult. Uh, And the country um, is the poorer for having um, well-meaning but often contradictory policies that uh, on energy uh, and emissions and reliability uh, and so on, and we're getting them from both state and federal. Uh, they're not joined up, um, so I have been, uh, and Energy Australia has been a strong advocate for a national, a coherent national policy around this, and we were strong supporters of the National Energy Guarantee, which came within a couple of votes of being adopted mm-hmm. um, by the government six or nine months ago. And I think it's a shame that we don't have that. Uh, we will get something like it.
0: Do you think that? Do you think that? Um, I mean, Energy Australia is obviously very directly impacted. Do you think that um, the business sector, more broadly, is sufficiently active in in advocating a position in these kinds of issues?
2: Well, I do, but uh, you know, business in Australia is now uh, the victim of very high cost electricity as a result of discordant and dysfunctional policies. Yeah, um, and uh, I guess our job at Energy Australia as we see it, is to make our contribution to the transition to a lower emissions uh, uh, energy uh, environment and future, but to do so in a responsible way that uh, enables us to keep the price of electricity as low as possible for our consumers, not just uh, residential but households as well. So we we, we are active in advocating to government the policy we think that would help that transition happen. In a responsible and sensible way.
1: So we, we had Kerry shot on the podcast, and she essentially said, um, "The pursuit of the perfect had been the enemy of the good to mm. some extent, and that actually now it should be get something in place, something good, preferably, but get something in place, and that will be that step one to solving something of an investment strike and mm. a, and, and businesses not knowing where they're talking." You, you'd agree with that? Get something in place and, and stick and with, it. with it. Stick with it.
2: Well, I think so, but uh, get something in place means get something sound in place, right? Of course. Uh, uh, we've had so many uh, proposals that individually might look attractive, but collectively don't add up to a coherent policy. In due course, the economics ultimately drive policy. that That's one thing you can be sure of, right? If, if governments impose uh, formulas or policies that drive up the costs of uh, inputs like essential inputs like electricity, then there'll be a reaction from customers, there'll be a reaction from c- consumers, and they'll have to reverse it. Um, so ultimately, the long term economics and even the, the, the shorter term economics will tend to prevail uh, in making governments in a, in a democracy responsive to sensible
1: policy. So, Kerry described what's happening in the energy sector as anarchy. <laughs> with ro- rooftop solar and and um, even yeah. broadly at scale, so um, sc- solar and wind entering the market. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's it's no, just sure, a I've, I've reality. Heard,
2: I've to heard say. her use that term, and it's uh, it's not an exaggeration um, uh, for her to, to use that. And she's been at the cutting edge as as the chair of the uh, electricity uh, um, the energy security energy board. security board yeah. the energy security board. Uh, and having advocated so strongly uh, uh, and unsuccessfully the, the National Energy Guarantee, which was a very clever, uh, I think it was a very sensible uh, way to navigate through the, the, the trilemma of reliability, affordability, and lower emissions. Uh, and to give a pathway, so she is dead right in saying um, that you know, that we, c- we can come up with a formula that will give us some in- investment stability for a number of years. But we failed to do so.
0: Can we can we dig into that a little bit? What what you've just mentioned, the investment stability, because we keep hearing about, and you know, it's it's a very common and sensible complaint that the policy uncertainty means that um, we can't the private sector it it won't be investing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we hear about this flood of of new renewables um, projects. what's what's the missing link there is it is it that we're we're investing in the wrong thing is it that or would we be investing in even more renewables capacity if there was investment certainty what's what's the current policy climate um, resulting in for for stakeholders in the energy market as far as investment
2: well uh, don't be misled by the headlines um, I was reading just the other day that the largest uh, solar thermal project in it South Australia, just got fa- failed to yep. uh, get financing because it was not a viable proposition at this stage of yep. that technology. Uh, so these things get headlines for years and would leave you with the impression that there's yep. a flood of renewable projects. But the truth of the matter, any project like that is going to need to have a company like Energy Australia or Origin provide a 15 to 20 year offtake at a price that's reasonably certain to give them the investment return and that uh, they couldn't get it up based on the economics of that program. We do have hidden subsidies. Uh, rooftop solar is, uh, has, is purported by significant but uh, hidden subsidies. Uh, they used to have direct subsidies, they've been mainly wound down, they're not completely, uh, and the ACCC has recommended removal of the small uh incentives the small um, uh, energy uh certificates
0: full disclosure adrian's got a solar panel and i don't so i'm very yeah. upset at adrian for because i'm paying well, for yeah. i'm you're, paying for his you're solar paying panels. you're paying thank for, you William. you're <laughs> paying
2: for but you're more importantly on an ongoing basis you're paying the share of the distribution yep. network that he is consumes for. that's right uh, but has the benefit of because yep. he, i'm sure he's still connected to the grid he is right uh <laughs> when he needs it but he's not paying for that that's right uh and and everyone has a rooftop solar is being subsidized by everyone who doesn't and that's a hidden subsidy that is distorting the market another distortion in the market in my view is uh the federal government suddenly deciding it wants to be an electricity generator hmm. right buying snowy building Snowy 2.0, a huge project that will crowd out uh, other investments in renewable projects. Uh, Energy Australia alone has uh, three um, uh, pumped hydro projects that we think all would be viable, but if if Snowy 2.0 goes ahead, we we don't think there'll be a business case.
0: I was gonna, we we're just going to ask you about that because that's Energy Australia does have more storage in the in, in investment decisions sort of in the pipeline mm-hmm. than just about all the other gen tailors. We do, and and you you feel like if Snowy Hydro goes ahead, um, it th- may not destroy the business
2: case, but it certainly makes us stop and wait and look and reassess. Before we move ahead with those projects,
0: because storage is a funny market, it, it it really eats its own lunch very quickly, doesn't it? As soon as the you know the the Tesla battery was, it's in South Australia, and effectively there's no room for another battery for a little while in in, in that jurisdiction. Is that is it a, is it a concern industry wide that Snowy Hydro is going to have that oh, consequence?
2: So. No, I think so. Any any government uh, supported uh, generation project which and and we and we have not publicly seen the business case for 2.0, so I can only assume that it has a positive benefit cost ratio, but it's an assumption because the business case has not been disclosed publicly. So
0: where was the storage before, though? If Snowy, if, I mean Snowy's, you've got some projects. I think Wyvernhoe is is the is the largest um, storage project storage facility. That's outside cur- of Snowy. Outside of Snowy that, that is currently in operation. But where were the, uh, if, if there's, you know, we've got one of the biggest um, penetrations of variable s- rooftop solar. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, a, in theory, there's a big arbitrage opportunity there. What was stopping the storage projects from coming online before? Well, there wasn't storage.
2: Uh, and this is the point. Because we had uh, an excess of, uh, of generation capacity. Okay. And that has been progressively destroyed by the closure of coal power stations. We, we had the luxury in Australia of being able to absorb a lot of variable uh, renewables, both wind and solar, because we had plenty of backup fossil fuel based g- gas and coal stations. Once they start to erode and you get a tighter system, it happened all very suddenly when Hazelwood took 1500 megawatts out of the system, what happened? Wholesale prices soared. Right? So that's when you're short of, of backup. And the backup doesn't have to be storage. It needs to be something that can be turned on quickly. Yep. Uh, and we also at Energy Australia have uh, the, two, uh, only, the only two uh, fully licensed sites for new gas stations in New South Wales. Uh, but again, we can't go ahead and justify those um, until we know whether there'll be uh, a market, not just for the next five years before Snowy 2.0 is built, but for the 10 years after it's built. And that becomes a very difficult equation for a private investor to undertake and to have a confident result about.
1: I've drawn a very clear link between the Commonwealth's ownership of Snowy Hydro, the decisions around Snowy 2.0 where the government said it wanted to build Snowy 2.0 rather than it wanted to the market to have a storage capacity. Yeah. Within it. There's a very direct link between that and investment decisions that are are, or are not being taken today. Correct, I think there
2: is, Uh, I I think there are. Uh, That's not to say we won't build some of these and and it may be that it still makes sense to have a pumped hydro uh, project of a few hundred megawatts in South Australia because it's a long way from snowy and the interconnection costs and so on may not be justified. Is that the Kaltana one? Kaltana is, is that example, but it may still be viable, but you have to stop and think, well, Let's do our numbers again. Let's see if we can get comfortable. Let's also see if there's going to be um, stability of policy ar- uh, around you know, even SN- Snowy 2.0 if we have a change of government. So it creates that sort of uh, uncertainty. So for do you think
1: that, that more direct intervention from governments is a slippery slope? Than I they, do. They intervene and then...
2: Well, I, I do because I think there are lots of parts of the economy where we have rightly said a government is not necessarily the best owner and operator. Uh, and that's why we've privatized a whole range of things. And we've seen the efficiency improve, uh, we've seen more investment in those facilities. I can think of airports, I can think of poles and wires, uh, and not to mention power stations uh, and, and ports. Uh, so there's a lot of parts of the economy where uh, I think we can say there's a case that there's been more investment, more efficiency, better productivity, and therefore better value to the users and customers. Through governments not owning uh, those infrastructures. There are other infrastructures where, because of market failure and other things, it's imp- essential that government steps in. Um, and, uh, and, and I think power is now a hybrid system across the state. Some is owned by government, some is not. Some is partly owned by the government, some is not. And I don't think that's a, a great formula for the future. But when the government, the federal government, then intervenes and says, well, we're going to be a builder or we're going to fund the building of what might or might not be economic. Uh, generation capacity or storage capacity, whichever it may be, that is going to distort the market and will hold up the private sector making its investment mm.
0: decisions. So, yeah. speaking of uh, market failure, mm. um, but still in energy, uh, we'd, uh, have some, we have some questions. We'd love to get your thoughts on gas. Mm-hmm. It's. Um, or Energy Australia, is, um, you know, is, is, a, is a very significant gas retailer, but it has no and generator as well with, with gas facilities. But it has no upstream gas. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on? Where's all the gas gone? Where, ha- how are you going buying it? Um, you know, we've got this abundance of gas that's being extracted from CSG um, CSG mines, but uh, it's it's all going somewhere else. We're, do we have uh, any cheap gas left here in Australia that you can access?
2: Well, we have made uh, our gas market internationally um, competitive in price by virtue of the export facilities sure. that have been built in Queensland, so all of the gas in the country now, in the absence of a government intervention, will gravitate towards the export price less the transport cost of getting it there. Now, getting it from Bass Strait up to Gladstone is a, quite a costly business, assuming okay. we had the pipeline, so that's generally not going to happen. but. The gas that we would uh, sell in Victoria that we would take out of SOBHP in the, in the Bass Strait, which is a diminishing resource at the moment, okay. um, is going to be priced by reference to the export price, even though it's a long way away and can't directly export uh, be exported. Um, so gas is pretty fungible, as long as you've got a pipeline network, as we do have. What we do need is greater supply in Australia and the two uh, or three greatest sources of unexploited gas are under our feet in New South Wales, under our feet in Victoria and under our feet or somebody's feet in Northern Territory. The Northern Territory government has uh, finally decided it will authorise the exploration and development of the Betaloo and other projects in Northern Territory. But so far, the New South Wales and Victorian governments have uh, put a kibosh on that even if fracking isn't required. Even conventional sources right. of gas in Victoria are not allowed to be produced on shore, uh, which is a ridiculous uh, policy that is re- it's the single largest uh, uh, improvement in productivity in the country would be to increase the supply of gas and bring the cost down to Australian users.
0: And is that why we're getting these funny um, proposals for LNG import <laughs> terminals?
2: It's a bizarre idea, isn't it? Here we're exporting uh, with one of the world's largest, if not the largest now, exporter of natural gas, if you take Western Australia and Queensland uh, into account, um, second only to Qatar, perhaps, maybe overtaking them. I think we're overtaking them this year, apparently. And yet we are going to seriously contemplate importing uh, into Victoria and or uh, New South Wales. It's a bizarre uh, uh, outcome from uh, some uh, poor policies,
0: but uh, it's it is it is remarkable. But uh, and and I re- I'd really like to explore it because if you take the extraction cost, the liquefaction cost, then t- then the transport cost, yeah. and still somehow there's apparently an investment case to add all of those costs on, and it's still worth it to to Im- to import that same gas right back to to Australia, what, what, what are the mechanics of that? How is that possible?
2: Look, I'm afraid I can't give you the uh, the detailed analysis of that because it's not a project that we're involved in.
0: That's
2: right. Uh, or I'm involved in, but I, I think uh, it is you, you rightly raise whether the e- fundamental economics make any sense at all in the absence of, uh, I don't think they would, in the absence of government interventions. Um, in this case, restricting supply.
0: So what's there is, is, is Sorry, Adrian, but just j- I just want to get... get as, as, as well as supply mm-hmm. well that's a state those are state issues mm-hmm. largely um wa on top of not having a on top of being quite uh, flexible as far as where you can extract from they also have a reservation policy do you have any thoughts on whether there's merit to that in, on the east coast or or should that or is that are we better off just opening the floodgates and letting the gas come out rather than thinking about reserving the gas that's that's um, set for export
2: well reservation is one thing but price is another um, and uh, I think you know users in New South Wales and Victoria can get gas if they're prepared to pay an expert price uh, if we're going to exploit the reserves in New South Wales and Victoria it needs to be done economically there needs to be a, a reasonable rate of return for the people putting up the risk capital to to uh, to drill the wells and in install the infrastructure. Um, and so you need to get a balance between what uh, would be sensible from a reservation point of view and the price at which reserve gas could be sold. Again, a government intervention is possible here. You need to have certainty about that if you're going to make those investments. Uh, and you know, I'm a great believer that ultimately, to the extent possible, government should allow the markets to decide these things. And that's been the uh, Um, If you like the philosophy or the point of view that we have uh, built into uh, all of our thinking at Infrastructure New South Wales about where the government should be involved in infrastructure. If the market can do it uh, and can provide the capital and can do so at a reasonable rate of return where there's no artificial uh, monopoly or where if there is a monopoly you can have a sensible regulatory regime such as we have for example with power distribution then you really should leave it to the private investors to take the capital risks.
0: So that was Graham Bradley wearing his
1: Energy Australia hat. Adrian, what do you think? Oh, it's obviously a pretty tumultuous time in the energy sector, uh, and in reality, it's been that way for a, for a couple of decades. You'd have to assume that this is the new normal now, but it's very complex for an investor to net to navigate that, and not just investor, in the general public too.
0: It certainly is, um, and uh, that was the first half of our chat with Graham Bradley. Um, we'll shortly be publishing the second half of the episode where Graham puts his infrastructure New South Wales hat on. For now, though, thanks to Graham Bradley for joining us, Adrian for hosting with me, and PwC Australia is our continued series sponsor.
1: Inside Infrastructure is an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast sponsored by PwC Australia, hosted by Adrian Dwyer and Ilya Zak. The show is produced by TAG, PwC Australia's media agency. This episode was produced by Adam Stevens, with research for the episode done by Yozra Alawadi, Linda Bergerson, and Mitch Dudley. You can subscribe to future episodes of the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.